Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. We're back in the beautiful canton of Souk and talk about one of the biggest exits the Swiss startup scene has ever seen. In 2013, SAP acquired Hybris. The company Ariel Luddy was leading as CEO for more than $1.5 billion. The path to success was not always predetermined. Hybris had several near-death experiences, was successfully turned around and then sold. We talk about this journey in detail and also take a look behind the scenes of this crazy exit. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to access additional content to today's episode. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SPB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Ariel, welcome back to the second episode of Swisspreneur. It's great to have you here again. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to talk about exit. And the first question is, what mistakes do Swiss startups repeatedly make in terms of their exit from your perspective? Well, I can only talk about the ones that I was involved with, obviously. The rest you only read in the papers and you don't really know what's going on behind it. But what I have seen, not just at the exit, but also in general, is that Swiss companies or Swiss people, and Swiss, I'm allowed to say it, they don't think big enough. Why do you think that is the case? Because of our culture and mentality? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they think, well, can I build can I build a ten million dollar company? Can I build a hundred million dollar company? They think it's arrogant to think about building a billion dollar company. Uh, so they set their goals usually pretty low, which which is which is sad. So that means the, the whole setup, how they, they built the company, is set up for an exit at 20 million or 30 million. So, uh, yeah, so the mistakes I have seen is that they're selling too early. I, uh, I can talk about hybrids. We had this, uh, you know, at, at hybrids, we had our first offer to, to sell at 15 million when we had no money. We were almost bankrupt. We said no. We said no. A half a year later to 25 million. Actually, another Swiss company wanted to buy us. Uh, and so it went on. So over five years, we said no. We said no to 750 million, uh, an offer from Digital River at the time. And uh, yeah, because we believed in it. We believed what we can do, what we're capable of, what the market can give us, what we can do. Uh, and it was hard. Sometimes it was very easy to say no. We just talk to those guys just to have fun uh, <laughs> later on and laugh about it and have a beer. But uh, yeah, dream, dream high. So I've seen exits where they actually they still think that they have a success story by selling the company, which had a great potential uh, for twenty-five million. You know, uh, which is ridiculous. So. Uh, Sometimes the founders get tired, 
or they don't believe in themselves or in the case they 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 want to sell as quickly as possible because they think maybe it's not going to work next year and then I'm losing everything. If we had thought that way, like I said, then we would have sold for 15 million and not for 1.5 billion. And yes, every year it started new. Will we again double our revenue? Will we again, you know, 11 times? Will we again double our revenue? How we, we doubled last year, can we do it again? You know, at Oracle, we, we, we doubled for 11 years. You know, it, it, you have to believe in your case. And it's like playing poker. You have to play the cards correctly and you can obviously stretch it too long. And uh, we have seen that in the Silicon Valley, some multi-billion dollar companies that said no at, at the wrong moment. But we're not even there in Switzerland, so we are on the low end. And we say yes at the wrong moment. And uh, that's that. So we actually lose opportunities to grow much bigger companies, Swiss companies, and much more important companies. Do you think that there's also this sort of self-confidence missing to actually pull this through to then also say or be able to say no to an offer of 25 million for example yeah absolutely i think this is hopefully changing now a little bit uh, but one reason as well is that the the the, the, the money was not, a, not there if you want to grow the company beyond a certain size you need external money and switzerland was okay for seed money and so on, maybe an A round. But B rounds and C round, B rounds meaning about 30 million, C rounds is maybe 150 million. These tickets you do not find in, in, uh, in Europe or in Switzerland. That's also why they built up these new funds uh, and so on uh, from the government, uh, entrepreneurs fund, whatever the names are. Uh, so either you find that money or then you sell it, and that, that's also uh, an influence. I've seen it with my companies. We've done now three or four B rounds. So the A rounds were European VCs, some US VCs. But the B rounds, except one that we will announce on the 14th of August, they were all American-led uh, rounds. So. Uh, then there is, yeah, there could be personal pressures. I've seen that, uh, you know, they have, these are usually young founders, their families, they're usually well-educated, PhDs, uh, and there's some pressure, can't you get a real job with some a real salary? We have kids and we want to do this and that. And uh, so there's some peer pressure. Maybe his friend is working for a big company, has a different lifestyle and so on. So there are many, many reasons, but... I think the main reason or the main problem that we have is we're, we're selling too early. Do not believe in ourselves enough. Mm -hmm. So if you look at these Silicon Valley companies, many of their successes uh, came actually from abroad. You know, technologies that they bought, like Google Maps, I think most of the assets came from Switzerland uh, and so on. And, and it's a shame, you know, that they could have been uh, large companies themselves. And, Let's also talk about your big exit case, Hybris. You had a very rough start as a CEO, and I think 2006 was one of your toughest years where you went bankrupt for almost three <coughs> times within the same year. And instead of copying your losses, what you basically did is, I think you took a, an additional mortgage 
or a mortgage on, on your house and you got uh, sort of credits from your friends and invested all of that money in the company, you basically went all in in, in, in that moment. And this is like, this didn't really sound like a calculated risk from the outside. So what made you so certain that this was the right thing to do? Well, first, it was not just me. So the whole team did that to all the extent that they were capable of. Mm -hmm. So we all went all in. You know, so that's, that's a big difference. And that actually made the decision easier because we all went all in. It was not just me, you know, dragging or pushing. Right. The team said, no, we can do this. We know we are good. We know the market is, we know the product is good. We can do this. We just need a little bit more time. And we had a, we had a guy uh, who helped us, uh, you know, when it was really necessary, he helped us with, with some financing as well, an individual investor. So, uh, yeah, I went all in because sometimes you have, you have to take the risk. And uh, that's what I said before. And it's not a nice, uh, a nice uh, situation when you have to go to your friends or business partners and ask them for money. Mm -hmm. And especially promise them 100% return uh, on the money. Normally they, sh they would, should say, you know, this is not serious. <laughs> uh, but it worked out. Have you ever been doubtful in any moment or thought about, hey, this thing might actually not work out? Oh, there are always ups and downs. You know, we had laughed together, we had cried together as a team, to be honest. Yeah. Some, some smart person sometimes said, uh, what did he say? He said, oh, si since I'm a CEO, I, I sleep like a baby. I wake up several times crying during the night. <laughs> yeah. No, there's lots of emotions involved. Uh, but that's where you, the culture of the company shows and the, the team spirit shows. I've seen things, people trying to contribute that we could survive another month among the employees, among the management. Now that you, you cannot buy this, you cannot create this. This, this is just happening. And that's why when you win, then in the end, why it's so much sweeter than when it's, it's, a, it's constructed. What made you such a good team that you actually went through that tough period and also decided to invest your personal money from all of you as much as possible? Yeah, it's, it's corporate culture. But again, this, this happens. You cannot mandate corporate culture. It was just a good setup. People believed in it. It's the belief. Some, some of them, the core team, many of them were personal friends with each other. They started the, the company together. Many of them, that was their first job, uh, you know, still after many years. So, uh, no, it was a, as a mission. We were driven by the mission. Yes, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And we did. Yeah, very successfully. Then also the, the pressure that you talked about. Are there any tips or recommendations that you can give to, to people who also face a lot of pressure with their own company because they might be in the downward hill of the roller coaster. How do you have any like tricks or hacks about how you cope with the pressure that you faced in a very big way during that time? I mean, there are no, there are no recipes, you know. But I mean, where's the pressure coming from? The pressure coming from your private life. The pressure is coming from from your employees. 
and the pressure is coming from your investors. So talking about investors, we had VCs on board, a Swiss and a Munich VC. Actually, one actually brought me or introduced me to Hybris. And you have to believe in what you're doing. If, if we had followed the advice, almost order of the VCs, we would have been out of business or a very small company right now. No risk, don't go in international, first this and that and whatever. So all these guys who call themselves now unicorn hunters, uh, you know, if I'd listened to these people, we wouldn't be sitting here. I would be in a small rental apartment somewhere. You wouldn't even talk to me. Yeah, nothing to talk about. <laughs> so uh, you have to push back to that. We managed, uh, or we had, a, we had a, an event that allowed us to do a capital cut, a down round, and, and squeeze more or less the VCs out and then be again in charge of our own destiny. Mm -hmm. So that, that really helped. Then on the employee side, the main thing is what we did, it was, this was part of the corporate culture. We were absolutely truthful to our employees where we stand. So you had a very transparent communication. Yeah. I mean, I see other, from my, also my portfolio, some other people, yeah, can we say that to our employees? You know, but why would they take it? We told them exactly how it is. You know, I mean, made it a bit simpler maybe and you know, everything, but you're running out of money then. That is the pipeline of the deals. If these deals come, that means this. So we were very upfront with them. So when we said, look guys, we cannot pay your salary, or can you do a salary cut for 20 or 30% and we pay you back when we have the money, or when, when we had to take action, even when we had to take, maybe let go a couple of people, they understood. But we also celebrated the victories. And we had them big victories. And uh, the, the parties we had, uh, uh, yeah, they're legendary. So uh, it, it has to go both ways, right? It was really this up and down roller coaster, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was day by day. I fight it, or we fight it for every customer on the sales side as it would be life and death. Mm -hmm. And then you successfully managed the turnaround. Um, and I would also like to talk about the critical steps that you had to take um, in order to successfully manage that. One case that you had to also face was an internal fraud case where you had a sales guy, I think, that was sort of reporting deals that were actually not closed and forged their, their signatures of the clients. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us about, about this and also what that meant for the company in terms of, re of revenue that you were basically calculating with? Yeah, he's, he was actually, probably still is, the nicest guy you can think of. They always are. Okay, I've, I've met two people like that. One when I wanted to hire an apartment of mine, and the lady, you know, she, she was too good to be true. And it turned out it was not true. Or this guy, he was friend with everybody. And... Uh, but he had a double double life. We later found out also in personal life, there were multiple threats going on and uh, really crazy. So uh, the founders even thought, you know told me that this you know something is weird. And I tried to talk to the guy. You know, let me know 
doesn't matter. We can fix these things. And uh, that's not part of his uh, his game. And it was clear the way he played it, it could not have a good end because, especially with deals, either the money comes in or not. So that's a lie he cannot you know, push forward very long. So I put more and more pressure on him and then uh, it came out, that's what he did. Hindsight, it was probably the best thing that happened to Heinrich because uh, we, we did the, the, the down run then because of that, which we squeezed out the VCs. Mm -hmm. uh, we had somebody giving us money so we could buy additional shares when we did the capital increase after the down run, which increased our percentages later on. So we made more money later on. And so it, it brought us together even more as a team because of this. Uh, so it was, it was a real shake-up. Um, so looking back, it was actually a good thing. But it was a terrible thing. And I've, I've never seen it in my, my professional life uh, that way. Because he brought other people into in, problems as well on the customer side. So uh, yeah, he was a schemer and uh, we had to let him go. Obviously, yeah. And what basically happened is with the closed deals, you were also expecting revenue that was actually not coming in, right? Yeah, there the were several million, uh, not several, but maybe one or two million, but that was a lot of money for us of with no money in the bank. And there was always an excuse and another story why this and this, and it went on and on. And uh, yeah, then it came out. And you also faced a challenge from a technical perspective that you also successfully managed. You did a replatforming three times which is completely uncommon because usually you do that once, maybe twice if you're high, right? Mm. Can you also walk us through how you successfully managed this and why it was important to do the replatforming? Yeah, that's actually a big part of, of our success. So we, we replatformed three times. They started way before my time, the product based on Microsoft technology. It was more like a consumer product, like e-pages, like, uh, Wiz, so you build your own shop quickly, point and click. Mm -hmm. But this business went away very quickly. So then just before I joined, they uh, replatformed on uh, Enterprise Java Beans, which was top-notch, uh, leading-edge technology at, at, at those years, for, for refocusing on B2B. So they needed more capabilities. And they managed, again, it was before my time, they managed to sell it to about 30 uh, customers. And then they realized this, this stuff is too clunky. You cannot change things quick enough. So they actually then, you know, uh, built a new platform. That's the time when I joined. I actually pushed for this as well, which was much more agile, easy to implement, easy to, to change, easy to maintain. And normally, and that was the biggest advantage compared to IBM or Oracle or Microsoft. They all had e-commerce solutions already. So nobody waited for hybrids, this few guys from Munich, you know. But we had a technology advantage because an IBM is maybe hundreds or thousands of customers. They could not change their architecture replatform. They would have to move away thousands of customers. They actually were stuck in that EJB Thingy. That's our second generation, which you realized you cannot change anything. You know, it's really hard. 
So we we just skipped this. We only had thirty or forty customers. So that was way easier to skip. Much easier, yeah. right? And all the other uh, ATG, which is actually the company that brought got Broadvision out of business. Remember, that's the the company uh, with that press release. American Airlines had a talk in the last uh, last thing. They were on this old uh, platform. By the way, in the end, we 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 uh, we put ATG out of business. So that was my my revenge in the very end. <laughs> so they had to sell their business to Oracle uh, because we killed their business as well. Was this also a driver or motivator for you, or was this no. more a, a side product? Because so I, I never thought we were going to be that big and that important, to be honest. Uh, so we had. Our enemy, we picked our enemy based on our size. So we had local enemies, we, yeah, you know, these were the ones we fight. And then we had a national enemy like Intershop in, in Germany. And then our enemies became bigger. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we were beating IBM and Oracle and the ATGs. And ATG went out of business, I had to sell. So that was, was nice. This also sounds like a, a pretty similar story to your personal life because you always look for the next level that you can go to. You basically master level one, for example, and then you get intellectually bored or you don't see any progress making, and then you switch to level two, then you see how far you can go there. And once you outgrow it again, you go to the next level. Is this also a parallel that you have between your personal development about how you are, were looking for challenges and how you also set up hybrids in terms of competitors that you were going after or markets that you tackled? No, it just became natural to us. They, again, there's no plan behind it. You do what you love doing, and then things happening. That's the same thing with an exit or an investment. You know, uh, just be good. Don't look for it. Looking back as a teenager, you know, if you were looking for a girlfriend, you never found one. <laughs> yes. You're looking and looking, and there's nothing there. If you're just happy and be your life, maybe you are in a relationship, maybe you're not. There's so many opportunities. And the same thing is with looking for an investor or for an exit. If if you're good at what you're doing, uh, then things are happening. So you cannot plan for an exit or anything like this. Or you cannot plan for level two or three. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, wow, you know, we dominate Dach region. Now we get these inbounds from Holland and uh, we, should go, we, should, we should be there as well. And all of a sudden, you touch a different competitor all the time. So you're already in the level two, but it's not like, I mean, of course we had a plan, we had a international plan for how you go into countries, but these plans, the moment we wrote it down, but changed anyway, because mm-hmm. things are changing, uh, the market, uh, the market is changing. So just be open, also be flexible with your plans. I went into countries earlier or the all because uh, although they, they, I was planned to go there in two years, but they could hire the right person. Plus, we had three inbound leads, really good ones. You know, you have to be open to, to be adjustable without losing focus too much, obviously. So basically, focus your energy on building a successful and a good company and not trying to look for investors or exit partners, because if you're building a good company, it's basically what you're saying, they will come on their own. Yeah. Same with being rich. I don't think you can have a plan so I want to be rich. That's the wrong end. You have, you have to be good at what you're doing, and then the rest is just happening. So was it never the original intention for you to actually sell hybrids? No. We, we were, we were uh, about two, three, four weeks away from an IPO in the US. 
So we had our bankers, we had our lawyers uh, working on the red herring. Uh, we had all these pitches, we were playing the roadshow. And then we got the inbounds uh, of offers because people tried to buy you before you're public. Yeah, that's a bit easier. It's much easier. Plus one of the bankers who actually would not be a lead part in the IPO, he actually started looking for potential buyers so they could make some money. So, so we were not looking uh, to be bought. We were, not, we were not for sale. So we shook hands with the NASDAQ guys already. And, and then we had about three offers coming in. And uh, that's when we started to, well, our, our VC made us think about this, obviously. I mean, he, he owned the majority of the company at that time. And we had, we had, we had the duty to think about it and uh, also what it, what it means. And actually the, the core team, I remember I was on a telephone conference in some air, airport in the world. I don't remember where. We had 30 people on the conference call discussing the three options. So should you go IPO? Should you go with Adobe who had another offer? Or should you go with SAP? And in the end, because of many reasons, in the end, 29 decided to go for SAP. What led you to that conclusion? Because you also said no to Adobe, which had a better offer. They offered you 1.6 billion, SAP 1.5 billion for the company. What led you to that conclusion, which I could imagine also made the VC not too happy? No, I mean, when, when I said no to that, I mean, there was, I cannot imagine what happened. Uh, no, I mean, Adobe, we, we really like the Adobe guys. The guys we, we talked to was for, for, I don't know how they called it at that time, uh, for their marketing cloud and so on. And the guys we talked to were actually Swiss guys. That's the day software guys who sold their stuff to, to Adobe. It's actually the Adobe experience manager now. Mm -hmm. I was just seeing a report of the guys. So they have a R&D center now in Basel. So I was on their board and I, I know them, I knew them very well. And that's also when you realized that Swiss companies sell for too little, right? Yeah, I always told them it was too cheap. I was not on the board when they sold. I already left before. Uh, but still, really good guys. Uh, I really liked them. No, uh, it was almost a setup because we liked Adobe. They were a partner of ours. We were integrated in their products. Their term sheet was clean. I mean, it's more or less, give me your stocks, give me half the money. With SAP, it was, of course, you know, a very complex uh, thing. And, uh, but the way they treated us in, the, in this due diligence phase and their vision, the limited vision that they have of focusing on the, on the CMO mm -hmm. and the way they treated the founders uh, and that the brand would disappear right away and this and that. And I said, no, no way. We don't do this. So, we, not just me, we said, we said no, which also meant several million no personal wealth that I said no to. And then, uh, yeah, we talked to SAP and it was a different story. I, I said many times on camera, I'd rather die than selling to SAP in the years before. <laughs> and 
people replayed these scenes to me afterwards. What, why did he say that? Because SAP was for me a cliche of, yeah, of a very boring old uh, half-dead uh, company. It changed a bit when, when we talked to the top management, uh, to Bill and, and, uh, and all these guys. It, what, what the refreshing part was, Adobe said, we know what we're doing. Uh, we're going to just do this with you guys. Some of you don't have jobs and the brand will disappear and this and that. Just take the money and, and shut up. And the SAP said, look, guys, we have no clue how to run this business. We tried to build a product two times. It failed. You know, uh, we are an old German company. We need fresh blood. Why don't you join us and run that business for us? And we like your vision. We even give you some other assets that fit fit the e-commerce. And you build a business for us. Yeah, it's a much attractive offer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we took that one. And the IPO one, to be honest, this IPO would be the beginning and not the end of a process. And after these 11 years, for some even more years, I think some of them were tired with because having then the scrutiny of quarterly driven results and this and that, you right. know, and not being really being able to make all the decisions because now you have this public view on it. Uh, that's why people then opted for, for, for this almost being independent within a larger organization, mm -hmm. which I made a, I had made a, a cartoon out of it to present to the investors, customers, and so on, what the strategy of this is. You should see it, a really nice one. So like with paper, when it folds up and makes things. So I said, look, SAP is the aircraft carrier, and we are the nimble fighter jets. But the aircraft carrier brings us into the territory, you know, we can do, do our stuff. When we're running out of fuel, we come back, and the ship protects us with the big guns and so on. So this combination of the big ship, which, which SAP is, you know, Absolutely. but it's also heavy, it's almost invincible. Mm -hmm. And with us, that we're able still to do our stuff, you know, contribute to the whole thing, uh, that resonated well with the people. And the domain is still active today. It's just called SAP Hybris, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that is also a, a big sign of success yeah, and successful integration. We had... I think last year only they changed the color of it before it was still the hybrid blue. <laughs> so it's now the SAP yellow. But uh, so it's many years uh, that uh, we, we could stay quite independent. And plus they gave us additional business to manage as well. Did the SAP offer come in at around the same time as the Adobe offer? Because saying no to 1.6 billion needs a lot of guts to actually pull that through, right? Yeah, it was the same time. but. When, I, when we said no to Adobe, SAP had pulled back their offer. So at that moment, there was no offer on the table. Well, how did that feel? Well, I said, well, worst case, we do IPO, right? <laughs> Which is also a pretty good option, yes. considering. I still tended towards IPO because I've never done it myself. But that's not a reason to do it. <laughs> uh, but then we got SAP back on the table. Okay. How did you manage to get that done? It wasn't me, it was the, the VC. Okay. We just showed them what we can do 
alone, standalone, and the potential and synergies with them as well. Right. And did, did you as a team have any number in, in your head where you said, hey, this is actually what we think the whole thing is, is worth? Yeah, of course, you had numbers from the IPO. The IPO, I mean, some said we could make uh, 2.5 billion, but that doesn't mean we get the money. So that takes two, three years until you get money out and many things can happen. And you also have expensive investment bankers. Yeah, exactly. So, but that it would be over a billion, this was clear to everybody. Okay. I mean, we had an offer of 750 million. We did the pre-IPO investment with, I forgot the name, uh, to establish a pre-IPO valuation, which was even higher. So close to a billion, so it was clear what the range would be. But upside-wise, it was always something possible. Right. Can you also walk us through how the communication, actually the first touch, um, happened? You mentioned your VC played an important role. How did then the communication also actually the whole process of selling your company go through from first contact until you... You had the transaction in your bank account. The thing is that these things happen very quickly. So SAP is doing transactions within two, three weeks. Wow, that's super fast. Even billion-dollar transactions. So it's fast. It's really fast. So we closed. We sold 1st of August. I would have to check my agenda when you were doing this. But this, yeah, maybe a month. Okay. And who initiated the first contact? Was that done through your VC or did SAP contact you? No, How did that happen? We wanted to go IPO, right? Right. And we selected our investment banks, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, all the best, the best of the best. They're all keen because they get lots of fees, right? One bank we did not, or we actually pushed out because they didn't add any value. So this bank then actually talked to them and brought this because they wanted they wanted, they wanted actually to derail the IPO so that they can make some money with the sale of the company. Then actually it worked out for them. And then how did the process look like? I'm, I assume they did any due diligence or something like that. It's almost nothing. It's really surprising what little, uh, what little goes on before they put 1.5 billion. That sounds mind-blowing to a person that hasn't seen that from the inside. Yeah, no, it's really... It's, of course, they, they, I mean, they, these companies, they make so many acquisitions, they have a team just doing this. Right? Uh, and it's more about legal due diligence and financial due diligence. But looking at the case and at the technology, of course they do... That, that we also had to do a test of what kind of open source stuff we have with Black Swan. And, but these are little things, you know, looking at this, at the, in the whole picture, what is the potential uh, that they didn't do. They just went through that checklist mm -hmm. like they do with any transactions. But uh, looking at what they've done in the checklist, I said that, that wouldn't give me a good feeling to spend. It worked out well for them. But sure. looking at the success rate of, of acquisitions in general in software, uh, it's not very good. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look back after five years or so. Right. 
There's also a famous quote from Peter Thiel that he mentioned in his book uh, from Zero to One, where he basically says there is rarely a right price for an acquisition because either it's too high when the founders sort of lost the spirit or don't have a clear idea about what they want to build in the future. So the acquirer basically overpays or it's too little if it's a really good company and, you know, there are lots of synergies and it's basically just starting to, at the at the start of the growth curve, basically. And then they, they pay way too little for what they actually get. But it's really that there's the, the right amount of price. Looking at your case, I mean, it's still... Actually, one of the, the very few smart things you, you ever said. <laughs> And, and looking at your case, I mean, it's still called Hybris. Um, it was a successful integration. Would you say that you sold for, for too little or? No, I think it's about the right. Okay. The right price, I would say. I think we did the timing quite, quite well. Mm -hmm. And and how did you actually also, I, I just wonder, how did you come up with the idea that now, of course, you were pursuing the IPO, but how did you then come up that now is the right time to actually also sell the company, that your company is also ready to be sold? Was it more like because there was a demand for it or how did you approach this? You know, we knew that if you do, if you go on the IPO road, things could happen before the IPO. Mm -hmm. That's just how it's done. That there will be different options on the table. And when you have the options on the table, you look at the original plan and you look at the options. And then you have to reassess. Mm -hmm. And that's what you did. And some people then push through it, the IPO, just because the guy wants to ring the bells. <laughs> this is also an, an ego-driven yeah. thing, right? I could, I probably could have pushed it. For, yeah, probably. Uh, or you do the right thing for the, for, the, for the team and for the company. These these people, many of them have really good and successful careers at SAP still now. They're happy. And our first number one employee, Katrin Günther, a, a computer science student, we, it was, she was our first employee. At the interview, uh, they told her, oh, we can go in the office. I know, let's go in the cafe because they're painting the walls, but they have no office. It was the founder's uh, bedroom, right? So she now she runs, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of consultants doing hybrid projects. So many, many of our core team came early, but also later lead very good careers. So finding a good home for hybrids was incredibly big on our mind. The responsibility for all these people uh, and also that they get enough out of it. So. Maybe I mentioned it before. We, you know, we, we actually our exit bonus. The, the, the CEO, myself, twenty six million. We actually gave to our employees, which would have been our money. That was the bonus for that we were able to sell the company at that price. That was in our employment contract. Said so, no, we give it to. So that was, and there was not even. We didn't even have to think about it. It was clear we were, we were going to do this. So. So I learned also a lot from the CEO, the original founder, one of the founders, about corporate culture. And he was also, because he was there a long time, and, you know, the emotional core uh, of the company. I was the leader, and he was the emotional center for, for, the, for the company. And this culture seemed to be a, an incredibly important part for also the hard times that you faced with the company. Yeah, we wouldn't have made it otherwise. 
uh, and it's some, it's good. It's, it's tough sometimes, especially if you have a happy end. <laughs> of course, <laughs> then it's also a bit easier to say yeah. that, right? Oh, yeah. I know you said it's difficult to plan for for such a thing to happen, and you just have to explore opportunities and be open. But if you were to write a chapter on uh, on the, in a, in a book called Billion Dollar Exits for Dummies. What would you write into that chapter, sort of as, as key takeaways for people that might want to achieve a similar success like yours? A, a dummy cannot write the book for dummies. <laughs> well, you have successfully proven it that yeah, that's, you. That's, until you understand something, you have to do it a hundred times. I've, I've did four thousand parachute jumps. I understand skydiving, but when going through it once. Yeah. Every process probably looks different. Right. It's just go along with the ride. And uh, I mean, we had eyes like this. We were, this was surreal, the whole thing, you know, with, it's crazy. But just uh, keep your cool and self-confidence. But uh, within ourselves, I mean, we were like kids. We were, so, what the hell is going on? You know? Mm-hmm. But there's no recipe there. Maybe you have also recommendation for people who sort of have this, you know, very grounded Swiss spirit here in Switzerland, and also lack a bit the healthy self-confidence that you need to pull through such a deal or to actually build uh, such a company. Is there anything that you could give them as a as a recommendation to boost their self? confidence and, and also get a bigger self-confidence in terms of business yeah if, uh, if they have a good good idea a good product they should contact hammer team and we, we let them know how to do it i think that's a very cool thing to say <laughs> before we end the episode i prepared some rapid fire questions for you meaning i give you two or three choices that you can make and then you can basically just explain your choice in one or two sentences. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. United States, Europe, or China? Europe. Why? Well, looking what's going on on the political, economical ways and how people treat each other, some leaders of those countries. So I'd rather, I'd rather have it in a more conservative way in Europe currently. University degree or early entrepreneur? University degree. Why is that? I think the times are over. Let's see, the, the, the society is much more prejudiced, as I say. Uh, you know, but formal CVs and backgrounds, mm -hmm. I catch myself sometimes when I, when I look at CVs of people to even give you a chance if you don't have this background. Correcting myself, I was just Friday, I have a new investment. And most of those guys, there are 15 guys. Most of them are from St. Petersburg. It's a company here in Zug. And six of them don't have a college degree, but they're outstanding developers. But yeah, finish that degree. I think it's worth it. It's also always still a little chip in my shoulder that uh, I always have to explain. But I studied physics, but I stopped. So, uh, yeah, do it. Do listen, it. listen to your mom. Get it done. Yes. <laughs> Idea or team? No, it's cannot separate that. It's both. Yeah. Motivation or discipline? Motivation. Why? Without that, 
discipline doesn't help. Passion or market potential? Market potential. And why? Oh, I've seen companies, I even have a, uh, invested in a couple of them, where there is an abundance of passion. But they, like I said, it's, it has to fit in the rest. It can probably still be successful if there's market potential and a little bit less passion, but you can have as much passion as you want if there's nobody there who wants to buy it. You are alone with your passion. Risk or safety? Well, that's clear. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> Bootstrapping or VC money? Bootstrapping, that's also clear. Why? I always say to people first, can't you not stretch it without my money? Even though I'm another VC. No, as soon as you have a VC in there, you're hooked. You've been there. And you, you cannot get rid of them very rarely. So, so you know, families take angel investors, uh, investment clubs, uh, whatever, but, but they're going to screw, and they move more and more downstream. They, they start investing earlier and earlier because they realize it, but they're going to screw you. So uh, you have to reach certain milestones and revenues so that you get a certain valuation, then bring them in, then they can help. They can discipline you in reporting and so on. But I always tell them, wait as long as possible. What would be a good stage before you actually get investors on board? Oh, that's, so the milestones are one, two or five million, depending which, which one you can reach quickly. The higher, the better? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends how much time you will need to get there. Mm -hmm. So if you need five years to get to five million, then it's probably not a good solution. But it only takes you one, one and a half, two years to get to five million from zero, then it might be an option. Mm -hmm. And the last one to choose from is crypto or traditional stocks? Uh, stocks, you mean investments in exactly. companies? For my lifestyle for the safe investments, it's definitely traditional ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe in crypto that much. I believe in blockchain as a technology. Crypto, there was is a lot of hot air out there. And uh, I still need to see the use cases, the real use cases working. But with blockchain and some crypto aspects, I have one company in, in, uh, with a payment token, I think, in the loyalty space. But I would put my my money in safer, safer nests. Makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ariel. It was a real pleasure to talk to you today. Is there anything that you would like to add to today's episode that we have not talked about yet? Oh, lots and lots, but uh, not now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so we will come Thanks back then. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> Thank bye you bye. so much and all the best for your future and the, uh, I think, inter interesting investments that you'll uh, communicate very soon. We are curious to hear more about that. Great. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We hope you liked the content. And if you did, please rate us on Apple Podcast. We would highly appreciate that. Next week, we'll already be back with a new episode, a Q&A session. Check out our social media channels for handing in your questions to the topic that we will discuss next week and get them answered by top experts out of our network. 
If you have a burning question, that's the time to ask it and get it answered from professionals. So we hope to see you again next week for an all new Swisspreneur episode.